0: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes
1: Sarah Haji. Hey, what's up? How you doing? I'm great. It's been a while. It's been a bit. Freelancer for, I guess, The New Yorker now, among others?
0: Uh, Yeah. Just freelancing wherever anyone will pay me. That's pretty good.
1: <laughs> Glad to have you back. Sarah, today we will talk about how Quebec just can't let go of its Islamophobia.
0: All right. I'm going to go now. David,
1: David's <laughs> joke. David, you're fired. The most recent secret meeting of Canada's media companies. Powered by Google. And we will talk about the vice reporter who will hand over his journalistic files to the RCMP when he is six feet deep in the cold, cold, just kidding, he's handing them over. Glad to have you back.
0: Thanks. I'm really glad to be here.
1: This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Peter McDonald, Henry Wright, Alex Eastley, Evelyn Rollins, Kevin Smith, Bill Dixon, Lindsay Wilmot, and Poyan Tabasi. I'm a political advocate in Toronto and I support Canada Land because, in a media environment where a few outlets dominate and the government broadcaster is busy praising fascists, we need someone to hold the media powers that be to account and tell the stories that we wouldn't otherwise hear. I also support Canada Land because I like hearing Jen make fun of Justin on OPPO. Sarah, before we get started, this episode is brought to everybody by Hover. Hover, of course, is an awesome domain name registrar based right here in Toronto.
0: Oh my god, are you going to get on my ass for not having a website again? How how many times
1: do we have to talk about this?
0: It's so hard.
1: You need a website. You really need a, I mean, like, who's your favorite writer?
0: I am. I'm my favorite writer. I was going
1: to say your favorite writer has a website, but, <laughs> I, but your favorite writer doesn't have a website. Your favorite writer needs a website. Sarah Haji needs a website. And when you get one, you're going to need a website suffix, a domain. Maybe you'd have .name. Maybe .haji is available. I don't know, but they have 300 of them at Hover. They have .store if you're going to launch a store for all of your related merchandise one day. Sick. Yeah.
0: Um, that You sold
1: me. We'll find out next time you're on if I have or if I haven't. Hover has best-in-class customer and technical support. They offer domains and email to pair with those domains. They have clean and easy to navigate user experience and user interface. And as I said, they have over 300 domain name extensions to choose from. We used Hover before. They were a sponsor. They really are very easy to use and very affordable. And you'll get 10% off of all new purchases when you go to hover.com/canadaland. Support a long-standing Canadian business. Get your .ca domain at Hover. Make a name for yourself with Hover. All right, Sarah, I want to talk about this law. They finally fucking did it in Quebec, didn't they?
0: Yeah, I feel like it's been like since I've been aware enough, it's always been hovering over Quebec where it's like, are they going to ban religious symbols or not? And they really did it. They did that.
1: It's a fucking embarrassment. It's Uh, humiliating. I mean, just for Canada, that's so embarrassing.
0: It's insane. And it's making me feel crazy because I mean, I feel okay. Again, this is based on my own bubble, but I feel like a lot of people aren't super outraged the way you'd expect them to be for this what i feel like is a human rights breach i just don't under like there doesn't seem to be like a sense of urgency in discussing it
1: agreed i mean people should be losing their shit like you can't teach you can't be a teacher in a public school in quebec
0: yeah it's not just that school board commissioners provincial lieutenant governor police officers some doctors dentists midwives home care providers so it's like a lot of things like anything i guess that you're working for the government, you cannot wear a religious symbol. And let's think
1: about that. Like This is like Civil Liberties 101. If you can't wear a yarmulke, basically it's a de facto Orthodox Jew ban. It's a Muslim ban. It's a religious Christian ban. It's like, I feel the same. Like, Do I have to explain this sort of
0: thing? Yeah, I mean, it, it is just a really... I mean, people listening to this can't see me, but I wear a hijab. And I just... It's insane because... I feel like so much of the criticism people who are really pro-secularism in this like sort of racist way, their main thing is, you know, you people don't participate in society the same way we do. You know, you guys live in your little communities. You don't learn the language. You know, like it's just kind of they're like, you know, you're oppressed because you're not a part of our society the way You should be because there's this barrier, which is, you know, religion. And, you know, and I guess Quebec in some cases speaking French or whatever. So you're therefore you're not a member of society. And this kind of just takes that argument. And I guess it like flips it in this weird way, because now you're stopping people from living in your society in this way that you want. So it's kind of like, okay, do you think I'm oppressed and that like I'm not allowed to leave a house or work? And now you're saying I can't unless I stop being who I am and that's the way that I'll be in your society? Like, I'm just trying to understand the logic, really.
1: The logic is racism. I mean, the, the logic is votes. The logic is that this appeals to people. You know, there's, the, the practical application of it is sort of an afterthought, you know? I, I think that this is just the worst kind of incitement the worst kind of division. And and the actual practical implication is an afterthought, but it, it certainly matters to the. I mean, the message is loud and clear. Like, And everyone kind of goes right to like, well, what about the people who already are teachers or already have these jobs? And yeah, they're, like, so, they're grandfathering them in because they don't want to have... Exactly. They're trying to avoid some news stories. They're trying to avoid some news stories of like, meet this person who's been doing their job diligently for years and now they're fired.
0: And it, there's been a lot of, I guess, like talk about, yeah, like what's going to happen to people who are already, you know, wearing that and yeah, they can still have their jobs as long as apparently it's as long as they stay in the same position. So like if you're a teacher at, you know, a school and you like move on and you want to be like a principal or a guidance counselor, you're going to have to take your hijab or, you know, turban off. Oh,
1: yeah. It's and like it, go no further in your career. And then to anybody young thinking of entering, it's just like.
0: What's the point? Like it cuts off so many options. It's just like the world doesn't exist in the same way sure. right now. And. I guess one thing that's really bothering me as well is that I feel like people are seeing it just for the law that it is rather than seeing all the wider implications of like, I mean, this is saying the government in Quebec, we think you're harmful in some way. You're uh, a threat to society because you believe in this thing and you represent it in this way. And according to Global, this is from May. So there's this Montreal based group and they offer legal support to women called Justice Femme. And the president told Global News that they've received 40 reports of incidents against Muslim women. Yeah, So they report to the organization on Facebook or like phone or email. And she said, we received 40 reports. It's the first time since the creation of Justice Femme that we've had this number in two months. And that's really not good news for us at all. So, I mean, people are already seeing this, you know, rise in Apparently, there were four cases of physical assault, two cases where individuals attempted to rip off hijabs, and in one case, a woman was spat on. So it's pretty much saying, like, I mean, anyone who (laughs) looks like me, who's been to Quebec, knows the kind of looks you get in some areas. And now it's saying like, oh, it's okay to go further. Well, we've seen this before. The
1: barbaric cultural practices hotline or the, uh, you know, the ban on face coverings at the swearing in ceremony. Whenever this stuff is in the news, there's a very clear message to racists, which is like the state is on my side. You know, yes. uh, like I'm not just some weirdo with a hateful ideology.
0: Yeah, it's, Canada it's OK. Is me. Yeah, I am we're Canada. allowed to do this.
1: And then they become the foot soldiers of this racism. But then I think there's also a message to people in those communities, like the message to Jews, like when all of the like, I'll go there, Nazi Germany, when the laws started to encroach, if you were Jewish, you're not allowed here before it got really bad. A lot of people's like, I can see where this is going. Like, you know, as soon as you're kind of like picked off and separated from society, it's a very clear message. So it's not yeah. just like, Oh, I guess I'm not going to become a teacher. It's, it's just like- no,
0: it's, it affects so many facets of these people's lives. And also it's insane to me because I just don't, I know the language barrier is one major thing. Like I'm sure there's a lot of French language news that's covering this in a certain way that, you know, isn't really accessible to, you know, the rest of Canada who doesn't speak French, but I just don't feel like I couldn't even really tweet about it because I was like, I don't know what to say. Like, it just doesn't seem like it's like I'm like screaming out like, oh, my God, like this is happening. And it's so insane. and It's so bad. And it's happening in Canada. And yes, it's a provincial law. But it's also like who's saying that this wouldn't happen anywhere else? Like, I know Quebec has been talking about it for a while. And it's definitely something that's been a threat to religious people in Quebec for a while. But I'm just kind of like, what? Like... Yeah. It, are we not supposed to go crazy and like protest about this? And one thing that kind of, this like made me laugh a little bit. <laughs> uh, the Quebec education minister said Malala could teach in Quebec if she removed her headscarf. That's buddy. Like, you're going to say that to Malala. I mean, like, <laughs> like good for you for like standing your ground, but like you're going to be like, yeah, yeah, Malala, we'd love to have you here in Quebec, but, uh, you know, you should take it off.
1: Bridget (laughs) Fatasi tweeted, imagine telling the girl who stood up to and was shot by the Taliban what to wear.
0: It's like, it's insane. It's crazy to me that like, I truly am like, I'm going crazy at this point.
1: There is a complicated history in Quebec about religious oppression from the Catholic church about the ways in which Quebecois people were kept under the thumb for generation after generation by the Catholic Church and the Quiet Revolution and wresting their freedom from that institution and forging a secular society was a hard won thing. And that is a lot of rich, interesting history that I don't give a fuck about. Like, I don't care about that context at all. I don't have any sympathy or consideration or, you know, reasonable accommodation for your bigotry because you were the victim of bigotry. I don't and I agree. I I I can't imagine how maddening it must be to live in a country where people ostensibly still consider themselves free but are not up in arms on your behalf and on behalf of everybody. Included. Yeah.
0: And I mean I know everyone feels like whatever affects them like no one cares enough about it. Like I'm sure if there was another way I was being oppressed by a government, I would be like, no one cares about this and like whatever. But I just I don't know. It's like I feel like there are so many reminders that like you know, Muslims and brown people and people who this will affect are seen as like less than human. And this is like a legal way for a government to be like, yeah, there's there's something wrong with you and you have to change it. There's something
1: wrong with the charter, by the way, like, you know, and it's this like Canadian thing that like, oh, we don't have this American extremism of like, the Bill of Rights that are unassailable and, you oh, yeah. know, you know, like ultimately the Supreme Court. Like, no, we've got the notwithstanding clause because we're moderate Canadians. And there's this interesting thing that happens where the moderate Canadian-ness, where it's like nothing is exhaustive and complete. Nothing is is 100%. We'll leave a little bit of room here so the provinces can can invoke this notwithstanding clause for emergencies only, you know. And in that desire for compromise and negotiation to make this whole Canada thing work, we have handed over a tool that basically makes all of our charter rights conditional yeah our rights are conditional and it was only a matter of time before somebody you know pulled that lever and uh and they have and it's gross
0: yeah and um again like i don't know what i'm supposed to do about it as someone in ontario other than being outraged but i feel like also it just kind of like the rest of canada we see quebec as this place where like they have their own problems and their own way of doing things and like and I feel like that's kind of lending to how little people seem to care in an urgent way, because there's this like separation where people don't fully understand Quebec and what happens there, and like what the government is, and blah blah. blah. Everyone's just kind of like, oh yeah, they have these language laws, and yeah, you know, and that's like, not us. Yeah, it's not us, and I I just don't want something to happen again, and for me to be like, oh, I told you so.
1: Yeah. I'm a guest tonight on this taping of the Slate Political Gab Fest, you mm-hmm. know, and they're so this uh, American politics show is taping a show in, here in Canada. And, uh, you know, I wonder if they know because you like, like, they I, don't. My they,
0: American friends don't know. They like literally do not know.
1: All right. I'm going to tell them. I'm going <laughs> to tell America. <laughs> I'm going to tell America tonight. Sarah, I made a scene yesterday. Can I tell you about it?
0: Oh, no, Jesse, you made a scene. I didn't go there intending to make a scene. I
1: promise. <laughs> Google invited me to this thing, and it was nice of them to invite me. It was a meeting of, like, publishers and journalists meeting Google for the Google News North, the Google News Initiative. Basically, this... this, get together because Google, you know, the unspoken thing is like, we sort of destroyed the news and maybe they didn't mean to, but now they're going to help rebuild it. You know, Facebook and Google now realize Mm -hmm. this is like a serious liability that the impact they've had on the news is a bad look for them. And frankly, we use the internet to get to news. And if news stops existing in any kind of a dependable or functional way, that's not good for Google or Facebook. So anyhow, they're building products to help publishers. They have programs, they have all these things that they're going to help the news industry. So they invited me to this thing. And, uh, I went, Sarah, I promise with good intentions. You know what I wanted? All I wanted out of this was I wanted to ask the right people, hey, I know you guys are trying to do a better job with podcasts because most people listen to podcasts listen on an iPhone and you're trying to do better with Android, which is like half the world. Can you put a subscribe button? Like whenever my podcast pops up or anybody's podcast pops up in a search result, Don't just give me the podcast play button. Give me a subscribe button and build in a monetization model. So support Canada land, you know? Yeah. And that that will help the news. And that's not me going into business with Google. It's just a a tool that they, they can, you know, help the industry. That's why I was there. And I was glad to see that when I registered for the event and, you know, accepted the invite online and when I registered at the Google office in in downtown Toronto, nobody made me sign any weird document. I was on the lookout for that. And so I go there and I'm in the audience and I'm about to listen to a conversation between Jennifer McGuire, the head of news at the CBC, Irene Gentle, who uh, is the editor in chief of the Toronto Star and uh, you know a top editor of the Globe and Mail who are like hosted by Google. You know, a little bit weird, but like they're going to discuss how they're going to support quality information, you know, how they're going to work together, I guess, with Google to support quality information. But before that conversation with these news bosses who like won't talk to me on the show or like kind of anyone that, you know, but they're going to talk at Google about their jobs. The Google guy gets up on stage and says, you know, welcome, everybody. And by the way, this is all off the record Uh. (laughs) to a room full of journalists and publishers. This, By the way, like, I mean, first of all, part of their whole Google News initiative is teaching news literacy. And any news literate person knows that off the record must be consented to by both parties and discussed. There has to be a reason for it, you know, so you don't just say to a room full of people, by the way, everything you're about to hear is off the record. So I I made a I was sorry excuse me and uh, he confirmed yes you know this is a a secret event this is a secret meeting of Google and the news leaders of Canada so
0: it wasn't even like it was like embargoed information it was like you literally can't say shit about this
1: off the record it was confirmed <laughs> I asked again for clarity it was confirmed so I got up and left when I got back to my desk I saw they'd sent me an email that like I'd caused a bit of a stir and they were like okay it's now Chatham House rules if that helps you come back which is like you can report on it but you can't say who was there or what they said. Sarah, I don't think that there was any, like, grand scheme of secrecy. Like, I think my, my guess is that anything that happens at Google, they just, like, make it, you know, NDA isn't off the record because if they are discussing products, they, like that's just, like, the way the tech world works. So I don't attribute to malice what was probably just, like, they just didn't think it through. But there is this trend since we've been having this, like, larger conversation of, like, How are we going to rebuild the news? How are we going to sustain the news? How are we going to fight fake news? Who's involved in this? Who are the stakeholders? And it's always, you know, government, big tech, who are, you know, the reason why. And, you know, journalism, lobby groups, unions. And all of these conversations are like secret or semi-secret.
0: And And then who's able to go to these secret or semi-secret discussions?
1: Yeah, the whole thing. I mean, even like the Google News Initiative funding. Like they, they gave money to like TVO and Global. The process by which they chose partners to fund was totally opaque, not transparent. Like, I heard from other news organizations were like, we didn't even know how to apply to this thing, you know? And can I try to organize my thoughts around all this? Yeah. Will you help me? Yeah. Because it's not just this event. Like, there's a bunch of stuff going on that I'm concerned about, and I think it's not, they're not unrelated. I don't I think mean, no big conspiracy, but there's a lot of stuff going on.
0: I wonder, I mean, as someone who had a job <laughs> and was laid off, and, like, I've resigned myself to knowing I'll be... Unless I get, like, a a job elsewhere. I'll never be, like, a staff writer at a publication in Canada again. Like, that's exactly where I am in my mind. That's where so many other writers in Canada are. So, I guess, again, like, you know, Google... We found out that Google made it so that, you know, these media companies were losing money. And, you know, maybe that's why people like me were laid off or more people were laid off or they can't give jobs or, like, there are no jobs in Canada, which is what everyone says. Yeah. So, I guess it's kind of like, what are you guys going to do now? Like, it's like, I feel like... That transparency is needed for, you know, people who are looking for jobs and people who are freelancers for life like me, where I'm like, I really, truly feel like I'm never going to have a job again. It's also like, you know, you said that there were a lot of like top editors there and whatever. And it was like this like secret invite only sort of thing. And it's I'm just I guess I'm wondering when the rest of media will be included in this discussion. Yes,
1: Yes. you're helping me here because what I'm going to describe in all of these different efforts that are happening now You know, there's a question I want to ask of them, which is, what problem are all these stakeholders trying to solve? Because the problem that we know exists is that like, you know, over like 20,000 journalists have lost their jobs in Canada. Uh, That's bad for the journalists themselves it's really bad for Canada. There's total news deserts where there's just no coverage at all. And there's a real open question as to whether or not we're going to have paid news, like whether journalists is going to exist as a job. So the ostensible problem we're trying to solve is like, how do we stop that? How do we make sure that those journalists can work? What is the model for the future? Like, so that was originally the problem that we're trying to solve. But now there's all this other stuff coming in that the actual problem we're trying to solve is like trust in news and fighting fake news.
0: Fake news, yes. And
1: and and that's a problem that I remain unconvinced in a Canadian context. Like, the Basic mechanics of true fake news which is making false shit up to get clicks because clicks equal money that business doesn't work in Canada because there's not enough clicks not enough people here so I don't know you know fake news was invoked in the media bailout shattered mirror Mm -hmm. report as the reason why we need a media bailout I can't think of one fake news story in Canada that has had like a really big effect I mean
0: I don't know either maybe I, I like when I was reading about it before I got here I was like I was thinking the same thing I was like is there, I don't feel like there's enough Canadian news for there to be super fake news. I mean, there is the stuff that people share from like, you know, 2016 and they're posting it now. And like, I feel like that's like a new source of fake news, but also I'm, I don't know if it's like, are they saying it like it's um like a preemptive effort before the election to yes, stop fake news? They're like, saying
1: everything. I mean, let me run through a few things that I've been, that have hit my radar here. Okay. Right now in the UK, there is a conference on media freedom that is co-hosted by Canada. Okay, Canada's teamed up with, the governmental level, okay, this is Chrystia Freeland's office, and they have banned RT and Sputnik, okay? Now, RT and Sputnik are are like, you know, state-affiliated Russian news, and they do a lot of propaganda, but the weird thing is, is like, if you actually understand a free press, a free press kind of includes propaganda? I'm not a big defender of RT or Sputnik, but like, when you've got like they've broken stories and they've reported on things that other people haven't. And then they've done stuff that has just been completely mendacious, yeah, exactly. you know, banning them, banning them. And they're the only country that's been banned. There's tons of countries that have state news and, and propaganda. Yeah. So, so basically under the umbrella of like championing media freedom, Canada is a stalwart champion of media, Freeland, And Christia Freeland, a former journalist herself, is teaming up with the UK. They're like basically exerting statecraft and using the moral high ground of like the freedom of the press to kind of like, you know, perpetuate what is like the excommunication of Russia from, you know, uh, all of the good thinking countries of the world's get together. And it was interesting because a year ago I heard from some people like they were being invited by Christia Freeland, like you journalists are stakeholders who we want to host at this meeting to discuss this, uh, this conference we're going to be hosting. By the way, it's all going to be off the record. So like journalists sort of being co-opted by government to come and help them represent this, you know, freedom of the press thing. I, then. There are all of these new reporter jobs in Canada, kind of the only new jobs uh, that are popping up in advance of the election around misinformation, you know, yeah. disinformation, finding fake news. Like, all, you know, there's a good smattering across, you know, the National Observer, Toronto Star, uh, CBC hired. They've all got disinformation reporters who are, like, going you know, to seek out the fake news. So Alex Boudelier at the Toronto Star, along with Craig Silverman and Jane Litvinenko, had a scoop in the Toronto Star. Canadians are being targeted by foreign influence campaigns, CSIS says. Oh, that sounds like a really good scoop. Like, my God, foreign influence campaigns getting ahead of the election. And CSIS, Canada's domestic spy agency, said that threat actors are trying to influence Canadian citizens. Although the agency tied it to an attack on democratic institutions rather than the election specifically, the agencies would not reveal the exact nature of the attempts to influence, but said the scope of foreign interference activities can be broad, including state-sponsored or influenced media hacking and traditional spy operations what? (laughs) So there's a foreign attack on our democracy itself, but we don't know who and we don't know what. And who are we hearing that from? Government. And the media is, through its disinformation reporters, is is like, hey, everybody, be afraid. Our democracy is under attack by foreign actors, foreign threats. That's a really weird story. And it's a story that's coming from government, the same government that uh, Heritage just paid $7 million for various projects to fight fake news. OK, so where does that money go? Some of that money is going to the News Media Council. The News Media Council is the newspaper lobby. They rename themselves. They used to be the newspaper lobby. And, <laughs> and now they call themselves. We don't. We represent the digital and print media of Canada. They don't. If you go to their frequently asked questions, on their website, it's still all just newspaper stuff. So this is like the newspaper publishers lobby group that lobbied for the media bailout. And they're taking money from Heritage to spot fake news. They've got all this cash where they're basically like, you know, a public awareness campaign. And what is the practice of spotting fake news? It's one of the first things that they advocate is like, what is your source? The S in spot is for source.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah.
1: And so, you know, is your source us, a newspaper? Or is it like one of those Internet things? One of those one of those Is it like
0: a blog. So is basically, it, yeah. I,
1: I'm not suggesting that, the, that all of these things are like working like on the phone with each other. Like what we're seeing here is a entrenchment of government, big tech, and established legacy media in a myriad of different ways and projects and associations and secret meetings and things, a lot of which involve money changing hands, often from government to media or from big tech to media. And I don't see them trying to solve the problem of, like, how do we give journalists jobs? What I see them doing is, like, increasingly setting up, like, let's, let's hit the public with kind of this, like, very fearful campaign that there is, like, sacred and profane, that there is good news and bad news. You know, right. And like the news companies have a vested interest in being like, well, we want to be on one side of that because now there's like millions of dollars a year in government subsidies coming to the right people. Plus, it just helps our position against this threat of competitors in the digital space. Whereas anybody who's actually assessing this and asking the question of like, if there's going to be a news media in 20 years in Canada, if it will be a cacophony of little digital companies with different interests, with different backing. With different political points of view, some of which will be trustworthy and credible, and some of them won't. Like that's the only so way. So it's, it's not really be. keeping
0: up with how news is evolving.
1: It's moving directly backwards. It's it's about entrenching, like it's like let's yeah. shore up who the real stakeholders are and give them an institutional stamp of approval. And it, it even give them kind of like news cop powers to excommunicate bad actors. And all under kind of like a moral panic that I don't think is justified. Like, what are we afraid of here? What's going on?
0: Yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's very complicated. (laughs) I mean, it's like I I feel like there's not I mean, I understand it because I work in media, but I'm trying to think like, will someone who's just a consumer of news understand all this? Like, will they like with that whole spot thing? It's kind of like I feel like there's more layers to it of like, okay, if you're going to spot fake news, how to find it or like how to know what's fake or not. I
1: think that's how it's going to hit.
0: Yeah. I just like I just wonder how this like it's good for media companies and people who work in media. But then with like a casual reader of news, it's a kind of like where do they fall into this? Like, how are they literate in all these going on? Like, I mean, it's just I just don't understand. How this is easily digestible. No, and I, and I, I can't person. imagine
1: that the public is all that interested. Like, it's, it's like, um, OK, so the CBC, uh, you know, their misinformation reporter had a story on the post millennial. I'm all for media literacy and I'm all for media reporting on media, obviously. Mm-hmm. So we were reporting on the post millennial and we were asking those kind of same questions. Like, where does your money come from? That's a great question. Yeah. I'm not saying like we need to know that. And they're not being totally transparent or forthcoming about that. Right. But then the kind of story moves on to be like, we found an expert who doesn't think you guys are real journalists. You know? Yeah. And the article kind of moves into the snide, like we, the CBC, look at this new conservative leaning media organization and and some good questions about it. And then some some things that are just about kind of like gatekeeping, like who's real and who's fake. And, you know, I feel like I'm not going to read a story from that same reporter at the CBC questioning post media for trying to get in bed with Jason Kenney's war room against environmentalists. Mm -hmm. Because there's things that the mainstream media does that are, are just as suspicious as what the post-millennial does. And there's financial backing for mainstream media that's just as suspicious of this, you know. But you're not going to see CBC declare war in that way against post-media. Because it's more about who's in the one category of real news and who's in the other category of, like, fake bad actors who we have to basically smear and shame, you know. Again, I, I just like to watch how power moves. I think that there's a lot of journalists trying to do their jobs well. I think that more media criticism is great but I am noticing a trend. I'm trying to describe a trend without seeming like a lunatic. And I and every time I see one of these projects pop up, it always is kind of the same thing. Whenever I go to one of these events, I see the same people there too.
0: Yeah, I mean that again is a whole other problem of it's like the same people doing the same thing over and over again. And you're like, what is happening? Like. Who are these people? Like, I don't know. There's just such a weird elitist thing. I mean, this is like a bit off, but like there is like a a bit of an elitist. It's Canada. Kind of Canadian media aspect to it that is a bit troubling. Because, again, it's like when you like when you're talking about whatever that CBC reporter said, where it's like, okay, well, who's a real journalist? Who's a fake journalist kind of thing? It's like, I don't know. Things are changing so much. Yeah. And. Most people who are doing a lot of journalism right now, not uh, maybe not most, but a lot of people you know didn't go to j school they didn't do these internships they didn't jump through these hoops the same way you know someone older did or felt like they had to in order to get to where they are and I just wonder like i mean who's the one deciding who's legitimate and who's not and what makes someone a legitimate journalist and what makes someone an illegitimate journalist so I guess there's that whole discussion as well, and i don't know I'm trying to think of. I don't know. Like I don't can't think of any Canadian fake news things off the top of my head, but the wor- I, the worst yeah. thing I
1: saw we wrote about this was uh there were fake stories that looked like C B C stories that were like Don Cherry is selling penis pills and those were fake.
0: Oh, it was like those like things at like the bottom of the page. Yeah kind of thing. Yeah, like yeah. That.
1: yeah. So everybody be on the lookout for the menace of Don Cherry's penis pills. <laughs> Help. as the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get ten percent off of your first month at BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand. Sarah, you have been here a number of times. You know about the fact that we note things duly.
0: Yes. I am aware. Okay. What do you have? (laughs) Okay. So there's that whole thing with the billionaire Jeffrey Epstein Mm -hmm. where, you know, it came out that he was doing some sort of child sex trafficking. Sort of came out again. Yeah. I I mean, it was like something that people talked about, but now it's like for real, for real. Yeah. And I feel like, okay, yes, it's a, it's obviously a huge story because he has ties to so many powerful people. And then it came out that so many people were like. He had like these aides pretty much where people were helping him find these, you know, mm-hmm. young girls. And there was like a jet that would transport them. And it was like this whole very disgusting, crazy, bad thing. But I feel like no one is talking enough about Prince Andrew who may be, a- again, this is all like alleged, oh, yeah, but he's,
1: he's allegedly implicated. Yes. Right? He's
0: allegedly implicated. He's one of the powerful people who may have benefited from this billionaire's actions. I,
1: alleged rape. Yes, alleged, alleged rape. rape. um network. Yes. Uh, yeah.
0: And I feel like people... Considering how much people like talking about the royals in this way where it's like, um, like, this person did this. Like, this baby was born. Uh, Princess Kate wore Princess Diana's earrings and everyone's upset. And I'm like... <laughs> You know people I'm just trying to use my words properly cuz I don't want to say now that Now that there's
1: very there's a credible reason to believe that one of the royals was involved in a child sex trafficking operation and Where's the news on that Yeah like yeah. where's
0: the big huge story and a blogger I really love.
1: getting covered. I hear what you're saying. Like, yeah. It's not like the Epstein thing is not no, getting covered. No, it's,
0: it's 100% it's not, getting covered. And that
1: angle is part of the story. But when you think about the kind of breathless, constant royal coverage, like there's magazines, like Hello Canada. Where's the Hello Canada cover? Yeah,
0: and I guess it's like, it's not fitting into this, Like, I mean, the worst a royal can do is like have an affair. Like that's like, those are the bad stories about royals when we hear about yeah. them. Where it's like him and the Duchess and like, you know, Camilla and Charles and all that kind of stuff. But now that it's something genuine. Genuinely, really bad. I mean, yeah. Forget the history of colonialism, but now that it's something that's like super immediately bad, like, it, like that should be splashed on the cover of like a tabloid. Yeah, you
1: think? You know what? You know what else? I thought might get more coverage than it has. It was sort of buried in there. Was the Conrad Black was involved? Not in the sex trafficking ring, but when Graydon Carter, the former uh, editor, yes, of Vanity Fair. Basically buried this aspect of the story in an exhaustively investigated profile of Epstein over
0: a decade ago. It was, like it was 2002. Yeah, it was, it was a, like twenty. The years writer old, did um, a Twitter thread where she's like, yeah. "I want to mention this, but Graydon Carter took it out."
1: Yeah, that was a whole angle of her story. It Was like, it was an open secret that Epstein did this stuff, and who did she get a call from? Conrad Black.
0: You don't who, say. Who
1: her ex-husband worked for. So she sort of had an interest in like not pissing off Conrad Black. And Conrad Black was like, allegedly, uh, Epstein's a good guy. Lay off of this angle. Don't get into this child stuff. So that's something.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, it's not like it's a small story. Yeah. But that, like these certain little pockets of it, I'm just like, are we really not going to go off on Prince Andrew? or yeah. like, Is there not going to be like some salacious headline? I mean, again... Like, it's all alleged. Okay,
1: Sarah. But I hear you. I hear you. It's you're insane. You're it's just insane to me. Off with his head. Sarah <laughs> has spoken. Duly noted. Thank you. I want to duly note the death of Mad Magazine. Oh, yeah. Does this mean much to you? It does. Yeah? I mean, I'm so glad to hear that.
0: I would get it out of the library pretty often. Oh, great. Because you're
1: so much younger than me. How old are you?
0: I'm 27. OK, so, yeah, I'm quite a lot younger than you and
1: you're of a very different background than I am. And, and there's like this like kind of thing going on since the news came that Matt is basically dead that like, oh, that's a boomer thing. And, and nobody even knows what that is. No, and people that doesn't know what mat- it is. Come on. I want to talk about why this is like a big deal and why I've been like really sad since I heard this. But I want you to finish your thought about getting it out of the library? Like, what oh, it means yeah. to you? I
0: mean, like, for me, it was mad TV was, yeah. like, the thing that right. that everyone knew about. So I have this theory that you're either an SNL kid or you're a mad TV kid. Like, you either really liked one or the other when you were up late at night watching TV. And mine was mad TV. Like, Like, I would watch Saturday Night Live as a kid. But, like, the thing that was truly funny to me was mad TV because I felt like it was – like, it was just so much sillier and, like, insane. And, like, it was so much less polished. Like, there was no, like, celebrity thing. You know, it was like, it was like this, like, kind of, I don't know, bootleg SNL in this yeah. way. And it was
1: also a lot blacker.
0: Yeah, it was a lot blacker. It was way more funny. And, like, it, I found it to be, it was more, like, slapstick humor than, like, oh, it's a parody of whatever. Uh, and that was my introduction to Mad Magazine. Also, the Simpsons featured Mad a, yeah. a bunch of times. So, like, I always knew it was, like, something that was funny. And they would have it at the library. Like, I would read Mad Magazine. Like, it wasn't – I'm sure it wasn't as big of a deal as it was in, like, you know, the 80s or in, like, early 90s or whatever. But, like, I I liked it. Like, I thought it was funny. And, mm-hmm. like, it, it is very sad. And people are saying it's irrelevant, but it wasn't because they were they were publishing, like – know, political cartoons and like all sorts of things sure. right until the end. So
1: yeah, and they kind of had a little burst uh, in their last year with with this amazing uh, feature that, that made the rounds virally about. Uh, it was a takeoff on Edward Gorey's Gashly Come, I'm not gonna Gashly Crum Tinnies basically, but it was about school shootings. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. No, I didn't. It's see it, it's, yeah. it's, an, it's actually like a work of genius. This, I mean, it's, it's 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 like you'll cry. It's a mad parody that'll make you cry, and just look it up. I'm not gonna even deign to explain this. It's uh, it just has to be read. It was really interesting to hear that from your point of view. MAD did something that nobody else did and it did it for decades and decades and decades. And it was an important thing that it did, which was that it acted as a counterbalance to every fucking other thing in media. Like you, you get old enough for media to get its hooks into you. And I'm watching this with my own kids. Like, it's just really powerful. Like that's, that's the world telling them like things are this way. Boys are this way. Girls are this way. Here's what you should want. Here's what you should eat for breakfast cereal. And it's just like relentless. And it kind of comes to represent the adult world. Yeah. And, you can feel really powerless. You have no influence on those messages. You're just like receiving them. And then one day you see like, I don't know, not Harry Potter, Harry Schmatter. Yeah. Oh, no, you didn't. Like, <laughs> can you do that? Can you just say that about Harry Potter? Can you have Harry Potter with boogers coming out of his nose? That's insane. And and you read this thing and it's, it's goofing on the stuff that was just like one way and you have no say in. It's telling you that it's OK to make fun of these things. And then... It's filled with all of this stuff that you don't even understand. Like when I was a kid, you know, you get these like mad reprints. So it'd be like old stuff, even when I was growing up in the '80s. So like the, I like Spiro Agnew jokes, you know, like oh, you really, you really showed that Spiro Agnew. Uh, you know, I don't know. It was and it was ethnic. Like its roots are in like a really kind of. Garlicky Jewish, like, it, like, it ha- like, like, I think it's interesting the dichotomy that you bring up between Saturday Night Live and Mad TV because Saturday Night Live was kind of like the Harvard Boys, yeah, you know, and Mad is just irreverent and much more ethnic and, and it was
0: like accessible, yeah, yeah, and it wasn't
1: trying to be classy; it was trying to be funny, you know. And Mad's drawing style and everything about it was just kind of like it was gross, it was tacky, and it taught you to distrust the adult world, and that is something that every generation of kids deserves. To be taught that lesson. And my kid, you know, my eldest is like eight and he's like, he's not going to get to read the mad parody of whatever nonsense the machine is trying to indoctrinate him with, you know, like we'll we'll have to dig through the archives.
0: I wonder if that has a lot to do with like parents being a bit more precious these days. Like, you know what I mean? Where it's just kind of like, I need to be aware of what my kid consumes or whatever, but... Now that you're bringing it up, I do wonder, like, what is what's the counterculture going to be for kids in this like way that's like, you know, only a bit inappropriate sometimes, but like really something that a kid can read alone and not be like.
1: I mean, you can make, Sarah, like, there's a sense in which we are living in a Mad Magazine world. Like, Mad Magazine, we wouldn't have Saturday Night Live. Like, Mad Magazine begat the National Lampoon, which begat Saturday Night Live, which, you know, The Simpsons comes. Like, you wouldn't have any of these things. And now it's so diffused and dispersed into the culture that parody and satire and that kind of humor is part of the mass media message. So, like, having some counterbalance to that maybe isn't as stark a contrast but everything kind of gets integrated back into capitalism and, and, and fed to you. And like, you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. you, st- you always need. And like, you know what the death knell was when Mad started actually having ads and not fake ads, you know, not just fake ads. Yeah. And that happened, I don't know, some years ago recently. And, and it's like after that, I was like, oh, like Mad was this island of like it actually was like punk and anti-corporate, you know. And uh, anyhow, pour one out for uh,
0: pour, pour out some Manischewitz
1: for Mad Magazine. Duly noted. So, Sarah, you are an ex-Vice employee. Yeah. You worked with uh, reporter Ben McCoo?
0: Yeah. I mean, he was on the news desk and he hosted a TV show. But yeah, I knew him. Okay. I know him.
1: Ben's been on the show a number of times and Ben just lost a case, a journalistic freedom case. And I spoke, this has been going on for uh, you know four or, four or five years. And I spoke to Ben in November of 2015 and I asked him this question. What's the worst case scenario for you? Um, if we're fighting the production order, if we fail and I don't give over my information, they'll ask me to, which I'll refuse. There's a possibility where it could be either a jail or a fine. So yeah, there's a possible bleak outcome. I don't think so. I hope mm-hmm. not. I hope our country is better than that. So our country is not better than that. Ben has uh, lost and Vice has lost and all of the uh, interveners, CBC and others were involved in this case trying to protect Ben and this production order, and they lost. And one thing I guess I have to point out is that Ben, four years ago, said he would refuse to hand over his files. No, that's not the case. Um, they, they are handing over the files.
0: That's very unfortunate.
1: Yeah. And I don't, you know, I'm, I'm just pointing that out for the record. I don't really want to heap scorn on Ben. I don't know that I would do any differently. Um, I actually don't know. I don't know if this, like, I like to think that if I'm in this hypothetical situation, the journalists sometimes imagine where the authorities are like, hand over your source. here, so going to jail. I would say, no, you can throw me in jail. And I would be, and maybe I'm a coward and I would buckle at you. I guess you don't know until you get there, but that wasn't this case, right? Ben was not being asked to hand over a source. The, yeah. the details of this, it's why it's like kind of an imperfect case. The details of this are that Ben had a source who was not a confidential source or an anonymous source. This guy sheared on this uh, Canadian kid who went and joined ISIS, who was an ISIS propaganda guy who like wanted the attention because he was on social media as like the new face of ISIS, like yo bro come fight with ISIS. We're having a yeah. good time. And he was this recruitment guy and he didn't there was no confidentiality towards anything that he was handing over to Ben. And Ben used his name in his reports. And when Shane Smith sort of stole the story from Ben and interviewed Sheridan uh, on Vice TV, like, you know, Sheridan's identity was part of that. And then, you know, Sheridan may or may not have been killed. It's kind of unclear.
0: Yes. And didn't the Canadian government know that for a while that he may or may not have been killed? Yeah. And Ben didn't?
1: Yeah. I think uh, the government thought he was dead, but still wanted the files. Um, Now they're not sure. There's like conflicting reports. The outcome of this is like essentially, you know, and, and Ben's explained this a couple times in the show. Why is this important that you don't hand over your files? And I, I think there's, there's an important principle, which is, um, look, there's nothing in these files. Anything good I had, I reported it. OK, there's nothing that's going to help you with your counterterrorism measures. But I'm not going to hand over the files because if I do, as soon as I do, I become an arm of law enforcement. And I'm a journalist. I'm not a police officer. And if I want people to come to me and give me confidential information or give me information at all, they have to know I'm not a cop. And what you're asking me to do is essentially become a cop and I'm not going to do it. And the journalistic community backed him uh, as well. They should. And all the organizations backed him and he lost. And, you know, now it's being kind of talked about as this is a dark day for press freedom in Canada. And I'm going to push up against that a little bit. Oh, no. If you read the ruling, they actually do something that I'm not sure there's a lot of jurisprudence like case history around. They say, well, this wasn't a confidential source of Ben's. This was not an anonymous source of Ben's. If it were a confidential source, if this was a protected source, we would rule differently. We may rule differently, but we would certainly consider that. I'm not sure that there's a lot in Canadian law that actually respects the journalistic institution of off the record or on background. And now, you know, Vice is saying this is a dark day and Ben's saying this is a dark day, but... There is a bit of a silver lining, like there is a bit of a precedent now where if you were asked as a journalist to hand over your source in the future, you could say, well, this is not like that Ben McCo case. The Supreme Court was very clear in that case that confidential sources must be protected. This may have actually advanced press freedom. I'm going to hear from some lawyers and some press freedom people. I, I'm open to hearing that I'm completely wrong about this. Yeah. But um... I just like I'm trying to see where this Where this is like, oh, we can't have this happen again. Because, like...
0: I don't know much about, you know, press freedom laws. Like, I'm not that type of writer. (laughs) I write about dumb shit. Um, So... (laughs) This is not so. (laughs) So this is, like, very serious. Yeah. And I have been following it because, I mean, this has been going on for so long. Like, since I was there, which was, like, years ago. And I do feel like, yeah, I mean, I totally get the you know, this is bad for press freedom angle, because now people have to worry in this way. Like, again, like, I don't think that he, like, he said that everything, I, everything you need to know was in the interview. He wasn't an anonymous source. But I do understand. And I think the part that people will latch onto to the most is, oh, like, this dude's a cop now. <laughs> Yeah. Like you know, he worked hard to get that source. He spoke to him. I, what messaging app was it? it was like Kick or Kick. something?
1: Like, what if Ben had just like journalism isn't about confidentiality unless that's necessary. It's yeah. about being public, right? Yeah. Sheridan wanted to be public. Ben wanted the story public. He didn't use everything because journalists don't use everything because not everything's interesting. If his case was, I don't have anything, you guys, but I don't like being your stool pigeon. Why wouldn't he just dump everything online? You know, just like to hell with you guys. Here's everything I have. Like this is for the public. It's not for the cops. I think that this does sort of deputize journalists as an extension of law enforcement if there's a new precedent here. I'm not sure that there is. I'm not sure, like, that they were actually encroaching on press freedom. I think that there was never any protection for journalists from this sort of thing, from the cops. Maybe it's the first time they've they've asked, they've bothered to ask. I can't imagine it's the first time.
0: No, I can't imagine it's the first time either. But it definitely did become, like, such a huge kind of thing. Like, honestly, I remember thinking, like, oh, man, this dude's going to go to jail. Yeah. (laughs) Like, he's, like probably gonna go to jail for this and I see why I mean no one wants to go to jail I
1: want to hear more opinions on this because I, I like I've done my best to get my head around this. No, been, it is really hard though the, I
0: mean like he was like very much like I'm never gonna give this to you like he went through so much shit I kind of felt that was yeah.
1: a posture and that's okay like I feel like, like that's got to be your posture if you're gonna fight you're like to hell with you I'll go to jail before yeah. I give you this and then whether you do or don't is sort of like we'll deal with that one. I
0: mean like there. I definitely wouldn't <laughs> I mean, I, I, I wouldn't go to jail for that. I wouldn't this,
1: like for public information, you know? Yeah. Like, if, like w- I don't get it.
0: I do think that even if it is exaggerated, that this is like a bad day for freedom of press, the people out there who are reading this will understand a journalistic experience in a different way, where, you know, again, as the serious journalist he is, he doesn't want to be an arm of the government. Yeah. He doesn't want to act according to what the government wants him to do. He wants to bring these stories to people you know he wants access to people because it does bring stories that other people otherwise won't hear. Like, I do wonder how many people think, like, about the whole process of getting someone who's an ISIS to talk to you. Like, and he had to find this dude. He had to download that app kick, which no one <laughs> no one uses. And then he had to speak with him. And, yes, the guy's very public. Yeah, and he was like, you know, the PR person for ISIS or whatever. But I I do think now people are going to think about this in a different way where it's like, oh, this guy like a journalist has to do all these things in order to speak with the source. And in order to get these stories, we need this this freedom for the press where, you know, they'll be able to talk to people and not have to worry about the government being like, hey, now you're a part of this investigation. I I mean,
1: I have trouble actually hypothesizing the situation where somebody is about to speak to a reporter and they're like, wait a second. There's that Ben McCo case, that, you know, because it's, it's it's different. But maybe, uh, and and maybe anything that gets people talking about press freedom is a good thing. I just can't ignore certain things like this happened at a very fortunate time for Vice when Vice was really trying to establish its legitimacy as a news company. Yeah. And a fight like this made Vice look really good. And <laughs> now it barely exists. And no, yeah, no, it barely exists. But you know, <laughs> I look good, good. Good. Good on Ben. Good on Ben for fighting. Um, you know, I, I think that the, the common person in society would say, yeah, like if you can like. Uh, prevent the next ISIS attack. Um, like, what are you talking about? What is what? Why wouldn't you do that? You
0: know? Yeah, I do get it. I do think you're right that someone won't be like, oh, it's that narc Ben McCoo I'm not going to talk to <laughs> right, him. Right. Right. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, again, it, I guess it's disappointing as well because he fought so hard at so many levels. Yeah. To try and not have to do this, and in the end, he like and had then he had to, to do it. Yeah. And I'm
1: sure the whole thing was very stressful. Good for his career. But stressful. I wouldn't want to be in the the, the center of something like this. No, Anyhow. absolutely not. All right. That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. Thank you, Sarah.
0: Thanks. It was great being here.
1: It's always great having you. You can email me at jessie at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Sarah, you do not have a website.
0: I don't have a website. And I deactivated my Twitter... Did you really? Yeah, it's, you know, I tweeted something and all these Trump supporters found me and I was like, I don't want to get doxxed. I'm just okay. going to deactivate. But I will be back on so Twitter. You're like a Twitter. secret writer. You're a
1: secret writer. I'm not that a no secret writer. It was anywhere. on July
0: 4th. All I said was, imagine being patriotic in 2019. And I got literally yeah. hundreds of people going after me. But I will be back on Twitter eventually because it's my job. It's twitter.com slash geeky long legs.
1: Check it out when it returns. <laughs> Our website, canadalandshow.com, has an excellent story up right now by Kieran Delamont about how the media bailout has forgotten freelancers who are not helped by this at all. Read that. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, if you want to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, then please support us at patreon.com slash canadaland.